Open with, open with me to Job 28. We are already in chapter 28. It's crazy. My gosh. I'm going to read it for us and then um, we'll jump right in. Job 28. I believe in you. Okay, read along with me. This is Job 28. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out the farthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They're forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air, far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread. But underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. That path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it, the lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eyes see every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they, they do not trickle, and the things that the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth and is, and is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. And the sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be got, bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where, then, does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Let's pray. Father, we ask for help during this time as we sit under your word. May it be profitable for us. May you bring light to our lives as we receive from your word truth. And may all of it honor Christ and exalt you. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. 
The deepest operating mine in the world is the Mponeng Gold Mine in Johannesburg, South Africa. It's a man-made hole drilled two and a half miles below the Earth's surface. Two and a half miles is the distance of 10 Empire State Buildings stacked on top of each other. That's deep. But it's not just deep. The actual mine contains over 230 miles of tunnels, all for the sake of striking at a vein of gold. 4,000 workers descend miles into the mine each day to search for and dig up the gold. The work conditions are dangerous. The temperature in the mines can reach as high as 140 degrees Fahrenheit. And if you paid attention in biology, when the human body reaches an inter internal temperature of 108 degrees Fahrenheit, proteins start to denature like scrambled eggs on a skillet. So to keep the workers from literally cooking in the heat, the company that owns the mine pumps ice down miles deep to cool the air and regulate the temperature. Not to mention that any fissure or the slightest seismic event could collapse the tunnels and bury the miners alive. They toil and toil and sweat in the heat of the mines and risk their lives just so they can find rocks. Gold ore. And by refining that ore, they extract just ounces of precious metal. Thousands of workers, millions of dollars of technology, dangerous conditions, the heat, the risk of death, all for this precious gold. In our passage today, the book of Job comes out of the angry back and forth between Job and his terrible comforters into this place of poetic serenity as it considers the wonders of mining. And in this chapter, Job, or perhaps the narrator of the book, steps away to consider this hunt for precious metals and stones and then compare it to the hunt for wisdom. It's a moment of clarity in the book. It seems like the clouds part just for just a second to foreshadow God's appearance at the end. And we're almost there. And the book finally gives us something semi-didactic. Maybe the most clear teaching moment of the book that we've had. Chapter 8, 28 speaks to wisdom. Now we've seen that Job is neck deep in a quest for wisdom itself. He's fallen for, from his rich, proper, prosperous, happy estate to this place of depression and anger, confusion and heartbreak. And he has consistently tried to make sense of God as he's argued with his friends for chapters on end with no avail. He desperately desires insight into the mind of God. He wants sovereign wisdom. He wants to know how God's mind works, how he could bring glory to himself through inflicting Job with pain in such a way. And as we'll see, that sort of wisdom just isn't accessible to Job. But we will also see that there is a wisdom that is accessible to Job. A wisdom that's derivative of God's and therefore accessible to us as well. And we really, really do need wisdom, don't we? That this wisdom that is derivative of God's, this 
what the Bible describes as a skillful, God-glorifying living is something that we are all in desperate need of. We need to know how to live life well. We, just like Job, need wisdom to be able to survive suffering, to be able to get through life. Job, after all, the book of Job is wisdom literature. It's part of the group of books that is supposed to teach us what it means to live with wisdom, what it means to live well and live righteously. So let's walk through this passage, this excursus on obtaining wisdom, and let's see what Job has to say about how to get wisdom. We're going to study through this passage like miners searching for precious gold, and we'll go down from level to level of the mine of this chapter until we dig up our answer. Let's look at level 1. Level 1, verses 1 through 11. This first level describes the wonders of mining. It says, Surely there is a mine for silver, a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth, and copper is smelt from the ore. Smelting is this process used to extract metal from its ore through heating and melting. And then verse 3 says, Man puts an end to darkness. He lights up the caves and searches out the farthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He does this amazing thing to search for something so precious by, by digging so deep into the earth. Verse 4, He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. The, the passage is calling us to marvel at the, the extent that man is willing to go. He's, he goes even to the furthest reaches of the earth just to mine, even to the places that are forgotten by people. Um, verse 4, the second half says, They, probably the shafts, hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. Verse 5, As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up by fire. The earth here is this marvelous thing. It, it, God has designed it to, uh, to, to, at the surface, produce food and sustain life, to grow plants and bountiful fruits for consumption. And then underneath it contains treasures untold, sapphires and stones and gold. And the narrator is trying to bring us to marvel at the world and what it contains. Verse 7 says that path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eyes has not seen it. This enterprise that man carries out is just so completely unique to him. The world is abundant, and man seeks out to, to harvest it. Even the falcon, to, to Job, would be the, cre the creature with the greatest vision, spot, the creature that is able to spot its prey and swoop down and capture it in its talons. In, in this animal that has the highest perspective, that can fly above the earth and see all of it below, even the falcon cannot see man mining. He continues, The proud beasts have not, have not trodden it. So even the mightiest work animals, the ones with the, with the greatest splendor, have not gone down into the mines. They can't see what man does underground. And the lion, too, has not passed over it. The strongest of the animals hasn't seen it. There is no creature that is able to do what man has done in mining. Such a, a technological advancement isn't possible for any other creature except man. 
Verse 9, he puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by its roots. It, it seems that there's almost nothing that can stop man. He overturns even mountains to find what he wants. He cuts out channels. His eyes see every precious thing. Verse 10. Verse 11. He dams up streams so that they do not trickle. The thing that is hidden he brings out to light. The narrator continues to marvel at man's strength and his ability to search for precious things and dig them up even in the most dangerous situations. Driven by desire and lust for riches, man can accomplish incredible things. This first level of the poem brings us to marvel at the industriousness of man. He truly is, as Genesis 1 shows us, the pinnacle and crown of creation. And in his exemplary display of ingenuity and power, he shows his dominion over the earth and all the beasts and living things of creation that God gave him in the beginning. Mankind, in this display of strength, determination, and dominion, turns up even the far depths of the earth to obtain what he desires. But as we dig a little deeper into level two, the narrator asks a very important question in contrast to this feat of mining. Level two, the difficulty of finding wisdom. Verse 12 says, But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? This is the true question. Sure, it's great that man can dig up the riches of jewels and gold. Sure, it's great that man is technologically advanced and can find what he desires in the deepest extent of the earth. But what about wisdom? Where can I find wisdom? Where is the place of understanding? Where can I get into the mind of God? Jewels can be found and mined with the right technology and the right expertise. Mountains can be brought low. Channels can be dug. Rivers can be stopped up. But wisdom, wisdom is different. It's elusive. Wisdom cannot be found in the created world. And it can't be just sought out. Wisdom cannot be purchased with money, even if you had all the precious stones and money in the world. It is inaccessible to humans and beyond any value man can ascribe to a material thing. Wisdom is the pinnacle of value. But here's the thing. There's no way to get your hands on it. No matter how marvelous mining might be, and no matter how industrious man may be to be able to get to the depths of the earth for pricey jewels, material rocks will never compare to the wealth of wisdom. And the dangerous endeavor of mining falls flat in comparison to this search for wisdom. Skip to verse 15. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. The, the verses 16 through, seven, through 19 mention gold, onyx, sapphire, gold again, glass, jewels, more gold, coral, crystal, pearls, topaz. In contrast to all the stones that, you can be, that can be mined, you will have no luck searching for wisdom. 
You could have all of the money in the world, but it wouldn't be a fair trade for wisdom. We've learned so far from the passage two things about God's wisdom. If you search for it in the, in the world, you won't find it. And wisdom is of greater value than anything the world can offer. You won't find it, and it's more valuable than anything in the world. Verse 20, in verse 20, we see the same question come up again from verse 12. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? And this time it's said just a little bit differently. It has already been established that wisdom cannot be found. So verse 20 changes the verb. Now it says, from where does wisdom come? If wisdom can't be discovered, it has to be given, provided, or granted from a source. But from where, who, or what is that source? Unfortunately, there is still no answer. Verse 21, it is hidden from the eyes of all the living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. As we've seen, just like the falcon, of course the birds who fly high above the earth can't just find it like mining. But here, not even Abaddon, this place of destruction, or death itself, can say that they have knowledge of where wisdom comes from. Even the furthest extent of, of, of reality can't give you can't bring you wisdom. From the highest high to the lowest low, no one knows where wisdom comes from. Wisdom, divine insight, seeing behind the curtain, knowledge of the mind of God, is not something that you can work hard for. It's not something that you can try and figure out. It's not something that riches can buy. And it's not anything that the world can offer, no matter how smart you are, no matter how tech-savvy or ingenious or schemy or hardworking, you are not going to be able to attain wisdom in your own right or on your own effort. The language in this first, the first two levels of our poem obviously posit wisdom as highly valuable, more precious than all the stones in the earth. But then I guess the question is, for us, do we regard wisdom with such value? Do you have an awareness of the value of wisdom? And do you live like wisdom is ultimately valuable? The question before we even are offered wisdom that's presented to us is what is it that you truly want? The poem obviously presents that wisdom, this idea of, of right living, of being in, of, I don't want to give it away, <laughs> of right living before God is more valuable than anything in the world. But do you believe the same? What is it that you truly want? And is it wisdom? Is it that you want fame? Comfort, a significant other, pleasure, fulfillment, more video game time, approval from your friends, good grades, your, your dream job, recognition that you can do this or that really well. What is it that you want? If it's not wisdom, if it's not righteous, God-glorifying, skillful living, then you're off base. 
you're wrong. You're deluded. Your pursuit is misguided. And you're headed for disappointment. All of those things will not satisfy you. The poem here says that more than riches of the world, wisdom is the true treasure of reality. But I guess the sad thing is that even if you did want it, then no matter how hard you work for it, you wouldn't obtain it. And it's impossible in your own strength to find it. The first two levels of our, of our mining excavation proved to be futile. But the last level of our, divine, of our dive into the mine of Job 28 gives us a little bit of hope. In the sweltering heat of the pit of this cavern, we can finally get our answer to the questions of the last two levels. Where is wisdom found? And we're given it in level three. Verse 23, God understands the way to it, and He knows its place. For He looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When He gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when He made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then He saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And He said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord. That is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Nothing and no one in the created order knows the place of wisdom nor the path to wisdom, but God does. Verse 23, he says he knows both the path and the place. The source of wisdom is God, and only He gives it. Then, to show God's ultimate authority over wisdom, the narrator casts our minds back to God's creation and depicts Him crafting the world in verses 24 through 28. Notice the mentions of the earth and the heavens, of wind and waters. God has control over the most helpful and even the most destructive forces in the world. From rain that helps crops grow and life to flourish to lightning that ravages and destroys. All of it is set and planned by God. And at the beginning, when God decided these things, it was then that He declared wisdom. In verse 27, using this metallurgist language of evaluating the worth of a jewel, the writer shows that God saw wisdom. He declared wisdom. He established wisdom. And he searched it out. It all belongs to him. And finally, in the, the climax of the passage, verse 28, God evaluates the worth of wisdom. And then he turns and comes and teaches man saying, Behold, look, here is wisdom, the most precious commodity in existence, infinitely more valuable than anything this world has to offer, than anything human beings can endeavor to discover, the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord. Job 28 teaches that you can mine the deepest caverns of the world and never strike the vein of insight into the working of God's mind. You can traverse the world and search out every corner of it, leaving no stone unturned, but never search out God's ways. 
You can go to the deepest depths of the sea or the highest reaches of the skies and they will confess their lack of understanding. But only in fearing God is there true wisdom. Only in a God-centered, reverential fear of the Lord does skillful living take place. And only God can give it to you. Now, if you grew up in the church, you might have heard this phrase, the fear of God, over and over again. So, and it's so much that you might have actually just gotten used to it. But what is the fear of the Lord? What is it actually? When you hear the word fear, what do you think? Do you think cruelty? Do you think despair? Do you think of cowering before an angry God with, who holds a lightning bolt ready to zap you when you mess up? That is not the fear that's depicted here. The fear of the Lord is faith. It's faith. The fear of the Lord is the Old Testament expression of what the New Testament describes to be faith. It's man's proper response when they come in contact with the one true God. I think our day and age has muddled the concept of faith. So much of, so, so it's muddled so much that you can use the word so ambiguously and mean so many different things. To most, it might mean I choose to believe in something. To most people, it centers on my choice. I put my faith in God. It implies this non-exclusivism that you don't have to believe what I believe, but I have my own faith in this God. Ironically, it means to most people that I am God more, I'm God over more, I am God over my own life more than it means that God is. The world's understanding of faith is so twisted and so far from reality. And sure that that ambiguity and semantic confusion might just be in my own head. But I think I like the language of fear of God to describe faith much better because it, it hits at the core of it much clearer. Fear of God, faith, is the affirmation of God as the undeniable central reality of life. It sees rightly that all of life and all of existence is God-centered. The one true undeniable reality. It posits the true living God as real. And it posits all people, including you and me, as accountable to Him. Fear of God recognizes Him as King, Savior, and Judge. And fear of God submits to the reality that He cannot be rejected because He is good. And He is irresistible when He presents Himself because doing so would be utterly foolish. Fear of God says that God is, of, is truly of ultimate value, that He is worth worshiping, that He decides what is right, that He is utterly trustworthy, that He draws people to belief and trust and worship of Him by revealing Himself truly, and that He deserves holiness and obedience from you and me. The response, this response of fear to God is all over the Bible. 
We see it when God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 34 as the Lord. And Moses bows his head to the earth and worships him. We see it when Jesus raises a boy from the dead and the crowds around him tremble in fear. We see it when the, the disciples are in the boat with Jesus and he calms the storm and they tremble. We see it in the transfiguration in Matthew 17 when Jesus physically manifests his glory and Peter, James, and John fall down and are terrified. It's what God requires of Israel in the law when Moses says in Deuteronomy 10, What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? To walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. There are hundreds and hundreds of examples of the fear of the Lord in the Bible. And in all of these, I think we can pick out four basic characteristics of, of fear that consistently appear, and I put them in your notes. The fear of the Lord is respect for God. It's submission to God, dependence on God, and worship of God. Respect, submission, dependence, and worship. And in this way, the Bible depicts the fear of the Lord as the only true and right response of respect, reverence, and, and honor because He is set apart of submission, relinquishing your claim on yourself because He deserves it. Dependence, it's reliance on God and recognition that He is in sovereign control. And worship of God, praise and obedience and adoration and love because, or in recognition that He is the most desirable and most lovely reality. This is the fear of the Lord. To respect, submit, depend, and worship God. And to add to our definition of the fear of the Lord, um, there are four observations in verse 28 that I want to point out here. Four simple observations that, um, that build up our, our definition of the fear of God. The first one is, God said to man implies that true wisdom only comes from God. We've seen this all throughout the passage. But look at, at how God, when He, after appraising and testing wisdom, turns and instructs man in the fear of the Lord. He says, Behold, look, I have it here and I'm going to give it to you. It emphasizes that wisdom, understanding, and insight into how to live rightly in the world are only given by Him. It has to be revealed and instructed by God. And I think that the natural conclusion of this observation is trust in God. As creator and sustainer of the world, and as giver of wisdom, God knows best. And because wisdom is so inaccessible apart from Him, we are required to rely and depend on Him and believe in Him and trust Him even when His ways are obscured and even when it doesn't make sense. Part of fearing God is trusting that He is not detached or incompetent or impotent or, or, or corrupt or short-sighted or petty. 
The second observation here is the fear of the Lord is wisdom, not just the beginning. The words of this verse might actually be familiar to you because they appear almost verbatim elsewhere in the Bible. Proverbs 9 and 10, 9, 10 and Psalm 111.10 both say, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Proverbs 1.7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But notice how Job 28.28 says, The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. I think the point here is that fearing God, especially in Job's context, isn't just the beginning of life, of wisdom. It's all of it. From start to finish, all of wise living consists of fearing, respecting, submitting, depending on, and worshiping God. All of life. And for us, that means, are you fearing God when you wake up in the morning? Are you fearing God when you go to school? Are you fearing God when you play video games? Are you fearing God when you scroll through TikTok or post on Instagram? Are you fearing God on the basketball court? Are you fearing God when you study? Are you fearing God when you hang out with your friends? Are you fearing God when you talk back to your parents? Are you fearing God when you steal? Are you fearing God when you do things that you know you shouldn't? Good, fulfilling, wise living is completely, and, is completely and fully comprised of and founded on the fear of God, of worshiping, respecting, submitting, and depending on God. And if the way that you live is not completely characterized by worship of Him, then you might not be living the good life. The third... Um, observation is fear of Adonai, not Yahweh. You can't actually see this in your English translation, but the word for Lord here in the original Hebrew is Adonai, which is the specific word that means Lord or Master. And this is used instead of God's covenantal name for Israel, Yahweh, um, which makes sense because Job isn't an Israelite. But it also is an Elohim, which is how God is usually referenced by Job and his friends throughout the rest of the book. This is the only appearance of Adonai in this book, in Job, and nowhere else in the whole Old Testament refers or shows God referring to himself as Adonai. It's just here. And so what I think that the use of Adonai specifically emphasizes is God as master. The power of calling God master or Lord can sometimes be lost on us because of familiarity with, with calling like Jesus Lord, but it really is a significant title. A Lord is someone who has authority, who has control and power. So when you call God your Lord, you are affirming that God is supreme ruler and authority over all people and all things and all time. You're affirming that He deserves to be submitted to. You're affirming that He deserves to be honored as your authority and that He deserves your obedience. The use of Adonai here emphasizes the application of the first point. God is Adonai. But do you live like it? God is Master and Lord 
but you, do you treat him as such? Because God is Master and Lord, He deserves to be trusted, and He deserves to be obeyed. Final observation from verse 28. Notice the parallelism in the last two lines of, the, of, of verse 28. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. As we've seen a lot in Job, poetry, um, Hebrew poetry is often written in these parallel statements, two lines that mirror each other um, and either say the same thing or they go together as a pair or contrast each other. And this is really important for these two lines because Job, by putting these two statements together, equates the fear of the Lord with wisdom. So to have a right fear of God is to be wise. To fear God is to live rightly. And the parallel on the second half is that turning away from evil is understanding. So he's equating the fear of the Lord with turning away from evil, which is wisdom, which is understanding. When you rightly fear and revere God, you'll live in a way that seeks to please Him. You'll live wisely. And living in a way that seeks to please Him means that you turn away from evil. You cannot live wisely or truly fear God. You cannot respect Him, submit Him, submit to Him, depend on Him, and worship Him if you don't reject every form of evil. Wise living is the rejection of evil. And true wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Okay, we've heard a lot about wisdom and living in the fear of the Lord, but how and why is this important for Job? How does this transform the context of Job's suffering? As we've seen, Job has been searching desperately for understanding and wisdom. He suffered so much and his pain just won't subside. So he cries out for insight into what God is doing. Job says, or has said all throughout what we've read, Give me insight into your wisdom. Let me understand on your level what you are doing. Give me the reason why I'm suffering in this way. Let me prove myself to you. I'm righteous. You're wrong. Let me have wisdom. And God says very graciously in response, at least here, No, I am God. You are not. Sovereign wisdom is mine. And it's only mine. But here's wisdom that is accessible to you. It's trusting me. Job can't obtain understanding of God's wisdom that underlies the cosmic system, that underlies and explains everything that goes on in the world. Chapter 28 says that it's just not accessible to man. But the course of action and the wisdom that are available to Job is this, to fear God, to submit to His wisdom, and to turn away from evil. Job doesn't get his answers, but he gets God. And if true, skillful living, if true, wise, fulfilled, righteous living, the life that we want to live in our heart of hearts, the truly good life, is composed of simply fearing God, then shouldn't that be enough for us? 
even in the midst of pain, to know that even when the whirlwinds of emotion and pain swirl in our hearts, that God is constant, that He knows what He's doing, that He is wise, that He is in control, that He is steady, that He will deliver, and that His promises are sure. By connecting wisdom with the fear of the Lord, Job 28 makes wisdom more of a matter of trust than knowledge. To fear God is to trust Him, and to be wise is to trust Him. Human knowledge will always run out. God and life will not make sense in some way. But even when our human rationality and understanding fail us, what is it that we are called to do? Fear God, turn away from evil. Fear God, turn away from evil. Fear God, turn away from evil. You and I are not minors. You couldn't ask me to go to the Mponeg gold mine and dig up even a speck of gold dust. It would be such a futile request. And in view of Job 28, how much more worthless would it be to ask anyone to go searching in the world and mining for the wisdom of God? It would be completely vain. And that's why, especially in the month of December, that's why the incarnation of Jesus Christ is so, so precious to us. God, knowing the futility of human wisdom, knowing the impossibility of our quest for Him, He comes to us and He brings before us wisdom in human flesh and says, Behold, my Son, Jesus is God incarnate, sovereign wisdom in human flesh. 1 Corinthians 1, 24 Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Colossians 2, 1, 1 through 3. Um, it, Christ is in whom, are, or in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus is the wisdom of God. And he comes to make the derivative wisdom of man this wise, skillful living possible for us. How? In the most shocking reversal of common sense, of common wisdom ever, God, the most glorious, holy, majestic reality of all eternity, steps into the limits of time and space, takes on flesh, humanity, and becomes a baby. God, the all-powerful creator and sustainer of the universe, condescends to be amongst his creation as a helpless child. And it is through this backwards act that God initiates wise living for us. He initiates the fear of the Lord. He initiates worship. He creates a pathway for us to respect Him, submit to Him, depend on Him, worship Him, and fear Him. 
And I guess if God, in His perfect wisdom, which again, is, it's His perfect ability to act such that He perfectly carries out His will, if he, if he is able to accomplish your redemption, the glorious redemption of sinners from eternal punishment by humbling himself even to the point of taking on flesh as a child and even to the point of allowing himself to be slain on a bloody cross, can you trust him in your suffering? Can you trust him to bring good out of the heart? When life doesn't make sense, when we can't see what God is doing, when we suffer and don't know why or when it will end, and when we come to the end of wisdom, we must never forget the truth that initiates the fear of the Lord and enables trust. This is the true end of wisdom, that Christ, the Creator and Sustainer and Savior of the world, would come to us humbly as a helpless child and die for our redemption. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ who enables um, us to fear you, who enables us to place you at the center of our reality and submit to you, respect you, depend on you, and worship you. And we thank you that because of the reality of Christ, of his precious work on the cross, that we can look at all of the situations of our lives that don't make sense, and we can trust you. We can say, I fear God. And therefore, I trust God. Therefore, He is wise. He cannot fail in bringing Himself glory. And so I will wait. We thank You for a good, solid rock to stand on. True trust and hope. Faith that we can have. Fear of You that we can have. Even in the midst of confusion and the various sufferings that we experience in our lives. And I pray that you would help us to continue to seek after Christ, to continue to fear you, and to turn away from evil. We thank you for your word um, and for um, the time that we have to submit ourselves to it. pray that in our time of small groups, um, you would help us to continue to reflect and be transformed by it um, and, and to, to be more like you. Um, as we submit to it. Thank you. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Small groups! Go! I got through the whole thing without...